Welcome to St. Alphonsus Wellcast, the podcast where we explore the many facets of health and well-being. This podcast is brought to you by St. Alphonsus Corporate Health and Well-Being and a generous grant from the St. Alphonsus Foundation. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the St. Alphonsus Wellcast. This is Kim Cleveland. I'm a nurse practitioner with St. Alphonsus in the Department of Corporate Health and Wellbeing. We are continuing our discussion series um, right now with Marissa Click from St. Alphonsus Brain Health Memory Center. She provides support and education to families in oncology, hospice, and is here providing her insight and support to both our podcast as well as the individuals involved in the community and in our Brain Health Memory Center. If you listened to our last episode, we discussed two important documents for advanced care planning, including the post form as well as the advanced directive form. Now we are going to delve a little bit deeper into advanced care planning topics, different considerations when creating your documentation, and just how to support those around you in making decisions for you at the end of the life or how to help your healthcare providers know what you want. Thank you so much for coming on, Marissa. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Yeah, so let's let's delve in. Yeah, so uh, again, Please listen to the first episode. It'll kind of give you some oversight because we're going to dive deep today. So uh, first, let's get into advanced directives. Okay. So again, just as a reminder, this is a document that allows someone to write down their goals and values and preferences for future healthcare decisions. And it also helps communicate who they would want to make decisions on their behalf if they ever lose the ability to make those decisions for themselves. Okay. And so with the advanced directive document, what that means then is you have to have the capacity or the ability to make healthcare decisions for yourself. Mm -hmm. Uh, That is something that is determined by a doctor. There are some different kinds of assessments that a doctor can do to determine if someone has capacity. And it's more than just being alert and oriented. I'm sure if you've ever been in a hospital setting, you get those questions of right. what's the year and who's the president and right. where are you right now? Um, and those are important, right? Because those are kind of the the very basics of capacity. Um, but with certain kinds of illnesses, especially uh, those that affect the brain, Uh, Sometimes people can be more conversant. They might Mm -hmm. be alert and oriented. uh, But capacity also determines, you know, if someone has an understanding of what's going on with them, is able to think through safety scenarios and the issues that they might be experiencing and is able to really understand what the medical team is telling them and make decisions that are consistent And that align with who they are. And that's not to say that uh, as we get new information, we can't then make adjustments to our decisions, Mm -hmm. right? That's that's smart. Mm -hmm. That's wise. That's Mm -hmm. part of integrating what people are telling you as you move forward Mm -hmm. um, or as things change. Uh, But this is really more of the the ability to determine that people are being consistent in their thoughts and their beliefs, right? There are things value valuable to us as human beings that probably won't change over time. Mm -hmm. And so uh, doctors are the ones who do those kinds of tests to make sure that the person who is filling out these documents really understands why they're doing what they're doing and what it means for them. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's really to protect them. Right. right? Because we want to make sure that, that people aren't being taken advantage of. 
Yes. Um, or being persuaded by others. Right? right. And unfortunately, that's something we see sometimes is, right. um, you know, someone in the family might be getting financial gain or mm-hmm. benefits mm-hmm. Uh, by keeping someone alive longer right. than maybe they need to be. Right. You know, we put people through lots of suffering because we might benefit. Right. It's unfortunate and it's a terrible thing, but it happens sometimes. It does happen. And sometimes that's intentional and sometimes it's not, right? Mm-hmm. We don't always think through all of the reasons why we're doing what we're doing in the moment. And so uh, all that to say, you know, that might be part of what happens before an advanced directive can be filled out. And it has to be filled out by the person and which it is intended for. Okay. Uh, so there's two parts to an advanced directive. That first part talks about who you want to communicate on your behalf. Uh, sometimes this is called a medical power of attorney. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's called a healthcare agent. Sometimes it's called a surrogate decision maker. These terms are kind of interchangeable. Uh, but this is, again, the person that you choose and authorize to consult with your healthcare team about your healthcare decisions only if you are unable to communicate for yourself. Uh, we get a lot of questions about, well, if I assign this person, do they just get to make decisions for me right now? No, they do not. Okay. Uh, this is, again, for that future scenario, uh, if you're in it and you can't tell your medical team what you want done then this person would step up and be your voice based on what you've put in the document. Right. And so um, there's not a lot of, of rules or regulations around who can be a healthcare agent. Um, the person has to be at least 18 years old. You want to make sure they're a, a legal adult. That's mm-hmm. a lot of pressure. A lot of to pressure, put even on, on an 18-year-old. But. Right, yeah. <laughs> but the other part is, um, you know, they have to be old enough to – to understand right. uh, medical terminology and these are really big decisions. Mm-hmm. And so we wouldn't want to put those on a child. Um, your healthcare agent can also not be your healthcare provider or an employee at your hospital or clinic or any place that you receive healthcare unless that person is your direct relative. Okay. Uh, so, you know, I can't just be someone's healthcare agent or their medical power of attorney because we have a close relationship. Right, right. Um, you know, say I'm seeing somebody in the outpatient setting even. Uh, because I provide professional services to them, it could be seen as a conflict of interest if I then am also assigned to be their medical agent. Makes sense. And so, um, you know, some good questions to think through as you're trying to decide who you want to be your healthcare agent might be questions like, will this be, will this person be available when I need them? You know, sometimes people live out of state or they live out of the country. Right. They might be hard to get a hold of. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, or maybe they're they're the kind of person that says they're they're available and there for you, but maybe they're a little bit more flaky or they don't follow through. Mm-hmm. Right. And not to say that as a judgment, um, just to be thinking through, like, the person that you want to be speaking for you needs to be Consistent present. and available, right? Yeah. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they have to be here in person. Um, they can make decisions by phone or by call. And, you know, I think as we've all learned through the pandemic, uh, video chats are a big part of our lives right. now. Definitely. And so there are lots of ways to be present 
that isn't just physical nowadays. Right. But you definitely want them to be available when needed. Mm-hmm. Some other questions might be, you know, is this someone that you feel comfortable talking about your beliefs and values with? Mm-hmm. Because again, part of the second half of the advanced directive is writing down those those preferences. And if you're not comfortable talking about those things with someone, you know, that might be an indication that they wouldn't be a good healthcare agent for you. Right. And as another consideration, you know, just taking that time to discuss in depth with the person you appoint to be your, you know, surrogate decision maker is so important just to give them the comfort and the ability to know what it is you want. So they feel prepared in the event that they're called to be that, right, that individual for you. Yeah. And the ability to ask questions, right? That's really important because Mm -hmm. as we all know, sometimes when we communicate what I intend behind the meaning, behind what I'm saying, isn't what people hear. Right. (laughs) And so, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's really important to have a dialogue with someone. And if you're not comfortable having a dialogue with them about your wishes and your values and who you are, maybe they're not the right person for you. Great considerations. Yeah. Some other considerations are, you know, is this person going to have the ability to understand what the medical team is saying or to get good response from the medical team. Um, you know, we all have different levels of healthcare literacy. You know, for, for you and I, for example, we work in healthcare day in, day out. We've been right. doing this a long time. Right. So we understand a lot of the the jargon and the information that's being provided. Or at the very least, if we don't understand, we're not afraid to to speak up and, and say, hey, can you bring it down to my level? I yes. don't understand exactly what you're saying. But for those who maybe aren't in the healthcare world a lot or have not had a lot of health issues um, or who have this idea about medical people that, you know, they have all the answers and you can't ever question them. Uh, it or can vice be, versa, right? Vice versa, <laughs> right. That it's, it can be difficult then to speak up, right? It can be difficult to admit, I don't understand. That right. can be really a vulnerable thing for someone. Mm-hmm. You know, if they're the person in your family who has the role of being really smart or they are kind of the know-it-all of your family mm-hmm. in a good way. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, it can be difficult to admit, you know, that I don't, I don't know what you're saying mm-hmm. or asking someone to repeat themselves or say it a different way or use language that is more commonplace. Mm-hmm. Um, so just thinking through, you know, could this person do those things? Do they have those abilities? Would they be okay asking those questions? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the really important question to ask is, will they follow my wishes even if they don't agree with them? Right. Because sometimes in a lot of things, actually, we're probably not going to agree. Uh, but the beauty of, of starting these conversations with your family and with your primary care doctor is that you get more perspective, right? And you start asking like, oh, what would you do in that scenario mm-hmm. and why? And it makes you think a little bit more about your circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, but even at the end of the day, after those good conversations happen, you and the person that you'd want to be your agent may not agree on the type of care that you want. And so do you trust them to still make decisions for you, even if they don't agree with them or to stand up for your decisions if the doctor doesn't agree with them? Or other family members too, you know, if you're 
appointing one family member or one friend to be your decision maker and you know that your other family members or other friends may not agree with those decisions, you also have to be able to trust that that person will will be your advocate in those situations too. Right, right. And we all have that family member that is just a little bullheaded, right? Right, (laughs) That wants to stick their nose in all the problems or they're going to take charge. Right. And sometimes that's the person you want to be your agent because you know they're going to get stuff done. Uh, But other times, maybe they're not the person. And so the person that you choose, can they stand up to that person? Mm -hmm. You know, and this this gets into all the family dynamics, which all of us have for sure. Uh, But it's thinking through some of those things and... And having good conversations and setting yourself up for success as a family by sitting down together and and just having the conversation. And it, it's going to be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be emotional at times, maybe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the hope is if you can set the stage and say, hey, this is important for us to talk about. And it's important for me to know that you all know what I want and why. Yes. And who I'm assigning and why. You know, oftentimes when when folks come into the hospital, we hear from uh, a patient, oh, my family knows what I want. And it's like, well, do, do they? they? Yeah. Do they? <laughs> Have you actually talked about it? Or, right. you know, do they, do you suspect because you've made some comments? Right. And, and yeah, maybe they do. But I hear from a lot of families when they get into the scenarios that we're going to talk about next where the advanced directive is triggered, it's helpful to have it in writing. Yes. It's helpful to know, okay, this isn't, this isn't on me to make this decision. Right. Right. It kind of releases some of that, that burden, even though they are acting on their loved one's behalf, it's not their decision. They're just following through on what the person who fills out the document has already decided. Exactly. And that can help release a lot of guilt pressure pressure worry about am I making the right decision right if you're making it based on what's in this document which you should right then yeah and so having that written down on paper can be so incredibly helpful and what a gift to give your family that you've thought through this yes and that you've written it down and it's clear and there's not going to be additional stress or conflict hopefully Uh, when that time comes for your advanced directive to be triggered, especially if it's in an end-of-life scenario. That's a good point. And so that's kind of the the big first half of the document. So the second half of the document is the living will portion. And this is where we actually get into those values and preferences and what kind of healthcare decisions you would want to make. And so some things to be thinking about as we kind of open up this section is, You know, people often will use past experiences in their life to make important decisions about about their future, about future healthcare or other life decisions. And so thinking through how your own past experiences or the experiences of others uh, affect the decisions that you're going to make for your future self, right? So... You know, if you've had that that family member that's had a lot of health issues and they made some decisions about their treatment or their options for care, you know, how has that affected what you would do in those mm-hmm. scenarios? Right. So some other things that, that help as well, um, again, going back to that idea that in healthcare we often want to just keep 
bulldozing forward and mm-hmm, fix everything. Mm-hmm. And there comes a point where we can't fix it anymore. Um, you know, thinking through what are the the defining qualities uh, that give your life quality. <laughs> you know, so for some people, maybe their physical abilities are how they define quality of life. So if they couldn't walk again by themselves or if they're really independent, if they needed help from somebody to perform those activities of their daily lives, like going to the bathroom or showering or getting dressed or eating, you know, if they lost those abilities, maybe life wouldn't have a lot of quality for them. Right. And for other individuals, maybe as long as they have their mental faculties about them, then that's, that's primarily what they care about too. Right. Right. Um, you know, what, what does the medical team need to know about you as a person that's important you know, what abilities or, or who you are, mm-hmm. that if you lost those things, life wouldn't really be worth living anymore. Right, right? Right. That's important because, again, it can be a guide, right? Because the hope would be whatever healthcare decisions we're making kind of fit in line with who we are and what our goals are for our lives, mm-hmm. right? That we're not just going to keep spinning our wheels. Yes. Some other considerations to think through are, are there any spiritual or religious or cultural preferences or edicts that would affect the kind of care you can or want to receive or certain discussions that you're willing to have, right? In certain cultures, you know, the the person who is having the medical change or issue doesn't get the information about what's going on with them. It goes to the family and then the family decides what the care plan is going to be. You know, for certain religious groups, there are certain medical options that are not viable for them. Mm -hmm. Right. So for example, many who identify as Jehovah's witness don't want to receive blood products. If you don't receive blood products that can affect the kind of treatment options you may be able to receive in the future. Right. For example, if you were to get surgery and something were to happen and you don't want to receive blood, you know, that might change the option of surgery. Yeah, that's, those are all really important things. It's not just necessarily what we want or what we think we want. There's a lot of other factors at play there. Yeah. And so thinking through, you know, what does living well mean to me? You know, what does it look like for me to have a really good day? What would I want to happen on that day? Mm-hmm. You know, what brings me joy and comfort? What makes life most worth living? Mm-hmm. You know, are there any beliefs about when life would no longer be worth living? You know, is your main goal of medical care to maximize time and prolong your life or to maximize quality of life and keep you comfortable? So these are the kinds of of questions and personal belief systems that you might want to navigate a little bit, at least, before you start diving into filling out this document, because it will make filling out this document so much easier if you kind of know where you're at with those things. Right. So when you get into the actual living will portion, that part of the document only triggers in this specific scenario. Uh, You have an incurable injury, disease, illness, or condition, and a medical doctor who has examined you has certified that such injury, disease, illness, or condition is terminal, and that such application of artificial life-sustaining procedures would serve only to prolong artificially your life 
and that your death is imminent, whether or not artificial life-sustaining procedures are utilized, or you have been diagnosed as being in a persistent vegetative state. Okay, so very specific <laughs> situation that would trigger the use of the living will. And, and boiling that down to, to very simple terms is that there is a diagnosis with no hope for recovery. Correct. And a persistent vegetative state, meaning that most of your organs are in a non-functional state and that, again, no hope for recovery. Mm-hmm. Right. They can't, they can't fix it anymore because, again, there's going to come a point where, you know, we're, we're only human. Right. We can only yes. do so much. And yes. there are some things that are irreversible. And so, you know, a doctor is determined we can't, we, there's nothing more we can do to fix it. Right. Um, a lot of times we get this question around this point where people will say, well, if I'm brain dead, uh, just let me go. And so I just want to clarify that in the United States, at least, uh, brain death has a very specific set of tests that occur. And when someone is determined to be brain dead, they are legally dead at that point. Mm-hmm. And so there are no other treatments or... Um, options that are going to be offered because in our in our country that's when we definitely see death as death Um, and I just mention it because you know spiritual and cultural understandings about death may differ Um, and so that is a legal definition for our country so um, you know say that you have come into the hospital and that scenario has occurred where your injury or illness uh, has been determined that is irreversible. They're not going to be able to fix it anymore. And your death is likely. Uh, You have some decisions to make. And there's this really great book called Hard Choices for Loving People. Mm -hmm. And it was written by a hospital chaplain named Hank Dunn. And he really gets into some of the... um, medical statistics and helps break down some of the terms that we're going to talk about today. Um, So I really recommend this book because he does a really beautiful job of merging the medical and the scientific language with the emotional response that comes with making these decisions. Mm -hmm. And he says, what really makes these decisions hard choices has little to do with the medical, legal, ethical, or moral aspects of the decision process. The real struggles are emotional and spiritual. People wrestle with letting go and letting be. These are decisions of the heart, not just the head. And so as you think. pretty powerful. Yeah. 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 So as you think through these decisions for yourself, just know that if you're having an emotional response or your family's having an emotional response, that's really normal because we make these decisions. So normal. Out of our emotions, right? And how like, can you not have an emotional response to something that has such big implications for you and your loved ones and, right. and all of those involved? Yeah. And so um, these are kind of the, the decisions that you'll be looking through in the advanced directive. Some of the decisions might include things like, you know, would you want to receive antibiotics, right? You might get infections down the road um would you still want to receive those things in that scenario where we can't fix it anymore um some bigger questions might be would you want to receive artificial nutrition or hydration and so if you don't know what these terms are um this is where we might use ivs or 
insert tubes into your mouth or your nose or your stomach to provide fluids and nutrients if you're not able to eat or drink. Yeah, and you know, just kind of thinking through all those questions in the living well and, and, and all the different medical treatments, this is a point where I think it's super important to involve, you know, your primary care provider mm-hmm. or people in your medical team because having seen many of these documents, you know, it's important to note that none of these treatments exist in a vacuum. Correct. Normally without um, hydration, we wouldn't give you nutrition or, mm-hmm. you know, there's very few indications where you would maybe get a breathing tube but not get CPR. And, yeah. and often it's all very co-related and, and using an opportunity with your provider to discuss, you know, in what situation would I need one or the other? You know, where would you see that this may be useful or this wouldn't be useful or something like that, particularly in terms of any of your own diagnoses or things you have so that you're making a very educated decision mm-hmm. um, is super important. Yeah, yeah. And that's where I, I also want to remind folks, apart from having these discussions with your primary care doctor or your medical team, is that for the advanced directive, you're really at an end-of-life scenario. Mm-hmm. And so that does kind of change some of the the perspective, right? Because, again... Right. This isn't just for, you know, getting an IV with a, a stomach bug at that. You know, this doesn't mean right. you won't ever get IV therapy <laughs> or ever get an antibiotic for any reason. This yes. is in the end-of-life scenario, in for sure. In the end-of-life scenario, right. Because, again, this, this doesn't get triggered until that event. Exactly. Um, so... And it's very easy to confuse these things, especially, you know, as we were talking about the post uh, during our last episode, which we'll we'll dive into a little bit more. Uh, But again, end of life scenario, still good to have those conversations with your doctor. Exactly. So some other treatment decisions that might come up uh, as you fill these things out is, you know, would you want to receive blood products or not? Uh, would you want to receive uh, dialysis? And that's a machine that removes excess fluid and waste products from your blood when your kidneys are no longer functioning or can't do that mm-hmm. as well anymore. But the major, you know, kind of bigger decisions that we think about in these documents are, would you want to receive CPR? CPR stands for cardiopulmonary resuscitation. And this is an emergency procedure that involves repeatedly applying force to a person's chest thus compressing their heart and forcing air through their mouth. CPR may also include giving medicine or using special equipment to give electrical shocks to the heart or placing a tube down the throat to help with breathing. So I want to pause just a minute on CPR because we have all seen those scenarios on TV or in movies mm-hmm. where somebody you know, has this rapid change and the mm-hmm. medical team gets called mm-hmm. and they receive CPR and they bounce right back up and start talking and start interacting as if Very nothing rare. happened. <laughs> it's, yeah. That is a fiction, folks. Oh, 100%. <laughs> but we can't help but keep that image in our minds mm-hmm. when we're thinking about these healthcare decisions for us. Um, I think that's a normal part of, you know, we, what we see is what we experience, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And so I just want to be really clear that, you know, CPR, uh, you don't just bounce back from CPR in most cases. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's a really hard process on the body. And 
Um, I don't want to be too graphic, but I do want to warn people that that is a very physically challenging experience to go through. Mm-hmm. To do CPR correctly usually means that... Cracked ribs and yeah. you know, all sorts of... There's a lot of blood. There's a lot of gore associated with trying yeah. to, to resuscitate somebody. Yeah, and I don't... I don't Bring it up to scare people into making right. a different decision. But I do think that we have um, this responsibility as as medical providers to inform people of the procedures that they're seeking and the things that might happen to them so that they can make really informed decisions about their care, right? So that they're not saying, well, I didn't know or I didn't understand. And so... Um, CPR is definitely something to to talk through of when it might be helpful and when it might not be helpful anymore. Um, and as you heard at the end, the other part of that is often when someone gets CPR, they'll have to be on a ventilator. Um, and this is a machine that pushes a mixture of air and oxygen in and out of your lungs to breathe for you. The machine connects a tube that goes through your mouth and down your windpipe at the back of your throat. And so usually when people say, I don't want to be hooked up to machines anymore, mm-hmm. this is the kind of machine that they're usually talking about. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when you're actually looking at the the document, um, a lot of these specific treatment options are not broken down for you in how the document has been compiled now. Uh, You just have to choose between three different scenarios. And so, again, this document gets triggered when you're in that end-of-life scenario where a doctor feels like, there are no more options to fix whatever's going on. And so in that scenario, you can say, one, if my death is imminent, I do not want life-sustaining medical treatment or procedures to be started. And if already started, I want all such treatment and procedures to be withdrawn, including withdrawal of artificial nutrition and hydration. Now, this does not mean that you stop getting care. We are still required to offer dignity to offer symptom management, mm-hmm. right? We're still going to manage pain. We're right, still going to sure manage anxiety. We're still going to help make sure that you're comfy and cozy and not suffering as much as we are able to prevent those things. And so you still receive care, but care might look a little different if you choose that scenario because the focus isn't on fixing it anymore. Right. It's not on being aggressive. And so you know, people are probably not going to get a lot of testing anymore. They're not going to get, you know, finger sticks to check for labs or blood draws or, you know, because the that's not the focus anymore. Mm-hmm. The focus is on keeping folks comfortable for whatever amount of time they have, right? And helping them to live as fully and as well as possible during that time mm-hmm. without doing more things to them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's one option. The other option is kind of a, a middle ground, And it says, if death is imminent, I do not want any artificial life-sustaining medical treatment, care, or procedures except for artificial hydration and nutrition as follows. And then you select a preference and you can write some notes next to that. Uh, And then the final option is, if death is imminent, I I want all medical treatment, care, and procedures necessary to sustain my life, including artificial nutrition and hydration. Okay, so that's more wanting everything. Wanting everything. We're going to full shebang, Mm -hmm. get it done, do all the things. Right. (laughs) And so after that first selection, there are some extra stipulations in the advanced directive that we're going to go through. 
So there's a special provision section, and this only applies to birthing people. And so if you're pregnant, you can choose to have your advance directive honored in its entirety during the course of your pregnancy. Uh, you can choose certain treatments to be honored or withdrawn, and then you indicate in writing which ones. Or you can have your advance directive revoked um, apart from the healthcare agent portion so that they can still make decisions mm -hmm. for you. Um, but again, that only applies to birthing people. The next section, uh, there's a little paragraph that talks about uh, chronic illnesses. And so this is just a special provision that says if you have a medical condition from which you are not imminently dying and from which you will not likely recover and you're unable to communicate, you're dependent on your care for others, um, and you decide you do not want life-sustaining medical treatment or procedures to be started, and if started, to be stopped, then you can select that option. Okay. And so that would be, you know, the scenario that I usually give folks when I'm talking through this is, you know, say you've got um, maybe, you know, you've got some diabetes going on, you've got some lung issues, maybe COPD, uh, and then maybe you start getting dementia, mm -hmm. right, or Alzheimer's, and you start losing that ability to participate in your care. In that scenario, you know, you can decide maybe I don't want to keep seeking right. aggressive treatment at that point if right. I lose those cognitive functions. Mm -hmm. So this is what you would choose okay. for that one. It might not be that you're dying right the second, but uh, you still decide you don't want to pursue aggressive cares anymore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, after that, there's there's this really beautiful free text area where you can put any kind of special things that are really important to you or things that you want your medical team to know. And it's just a, a write it in yourself okay. section. And so I've seen people put things in here like maybe they're only okay with going to the hospital for a workup just to find out what's going on, but they wouldn't want to escalate their care to, you know, an intensive care unit level of care, an ICU okay. level of care. Okay. Or maybe um, they would want a time-limited trial on certain treatment options. Like maybe they wouldn't ever want a permanent feeding tube, but maybe they'd be okay with a feeding tube for a certain period of time with the goal of improving their nutritional intake. intake. And if they couldn't meet that goal, mm -hmm. then withdraw that care. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, sometimes, uh, again, we all have family dynamics, and sometimes there are just people that you're like, do not involve them Don't in my care. Don't listen to this person, yeah. <laughs> Don't bring them to the yeah. bedside. Um, put that in. You know, or if there are special or specific rituals that you need if you're in an end-of-life scenario, you know, you need specific religious practitioners or, um, you know, you need, like, you know, if you're Catholic, for example, you want to receive mm -hmm. uh, Sacrament of the Sick and Dying or Last Rites. Mm -hmm. um, or if you have any funeral or burial wishes or you're an organ donor so those are really important things to to put in it kind of just gives more guidance more context yeah um and then the final little section just talks about if you've filled out a post form or not mm -hmm. and if you have great uh we just want to make sure that your post form and your advance directive are saying the same things Consistent. so that those documents are not in conflict with each other right very important yes uh, and then finally, in the state of Idaho, we just have to sign the document. So if you're filling it out for you, which you should be, nobody else should be filling it out for you, mm 
you just sign it at the end and it's ready to go. Um, other states have different uh, issues or ways to f- complete that form. Uh, so, for example, in Oregon, you have to have it notarized or you have to have it witnessed. Right. So just make sure you're looking through the document for your state to make sure you're filling it out correctly if you're listening from another state. The final question that we get is, well, we've done all this work. Now what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, uh, again, make sure you've been having these conversations with your family. You want to make sure that once you complete the document that your primary care doctor has a copy of it. Uh, your hospital of choice has a copy of it. Uh, if you live in um, a nursing facility or an assisted living facility or any other kind of care facility, you want to make sure that that group has a copy of it. These are all good places for this to live. And, and again, if you make any changes, make sure you update yeah, those yeah. who have the, the document with those changes as well. Yeah. And again, the Department of Health and Welfare has an online registry. That's great. So you can keep it online. It's great for especially those folks who travel a lot. And so that's kind of the deep dive into advanced directives. Super important information about all the nitty gritty pieces. Thank you so much for going in deeper to each of the questions because there are so many follow up questions when people are faced with these questions that they have to answer about the end of life. Mm -hmm. And it's This is just going to be such a great resource for people as they're filling out their own forms for themselves or their loved ones. They know exactly what they're answering and why and what to consider when answering those questions. Definitely. Yeah. And so, uh, again, the advanced directive, future scenarios. And so if it's more urgent and you need to fill out a post, it's all of the same questions that an advanced directive has. It just in the post form goes into effect right now and is a doctor's order that follows you out into the world. That's great. Thank you so much. Um, For those listening, if you have any questions or need any extra support, you can always um, reach out to the St. Alphonsus Brain Health Memory Center Program, your primary care provider, um, social workers and chaplains within the community, and they can at least point you in the right direction of how to get the help you need. Um, Thank you so much for listening. And then you can always email us at sawellness at stalphonsus.org with any of your questions or concerns. Have a great day. Thank you so much, Marissa. Thanks for having me. Yeah, have a great day. Thank you for listening to this episode of St. Alphonsus Wellcast, brought to you by St. Alphonsus Corporate Health and Wellbeing and the St. Alphonsus Foundation. Always be sure to catch new episodes by subscribing to us through all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. We hope you'll tune in again. Until then, be well.